what an awesome week. I got to tell you, it was so much fun just seeing the kids, just a full house of kids just bouncing around, just enjoying every minute, being able to go from station to station, just couldn't wait to see what would happen next. It, it was awesome. And it's good to be able to come together this morning and just celebrate that. And just be able to praise God for, for just the amount of kids and for the amount of, of volunteers, nearly a hundred of you just stepped up that week just to serve and to make it an awesome week for the kids. And really the, the coolest thing about it is every single child that, that came got to hear the good news of Jesus Christ in a creative, relevant, clear way. None of them could have walked out of this place not knowing the good news of Jesus. And so if you see Pastor Brian, okay, you got to tell him, noise job, okay? You just got to tell him that, noise job, noise. He did a really great job this past week, so you got to let him know. And, you know, the, the kids loved it. And, and a good story is kind of like that too, you know? When you just get into a story and you can't wait to see what happens next, and you, and you, you just can't wait to see the, the, the page turn and, and what's, what's going to happen as you continue reading or maybe somebody's telling you the story and you're on the edge of your seat and you can't wait to hear what's coming. A good story is that way. And, you know, at my house, it's not just enough to hear the story or to read the story. You know, my kids, they want to be in the story, right? They, they want to make it come to life, especially when they were younger, our daughters, Emma and Bree, oftentimes they would, they would put on dresses and then they would transform into princesses in their elegant gowns and they would have forts made of cardboard and sheets and these forts would transform into extravagant castles. Their dolls would become damsels in distress, constantly in need of their rescue. E even Pierce, our four-year-old son, he would have a role to play. He would be the renegade prince who would never follow the instruction of his older princesses. And Steph and I, we would often be invited into their stories, and they would invite us over into their imaginative world, and we would sit and we would watch as they would tell their whimsical tales. Only they never really told them. At our house, every story became a musical. And they would sing these songs and bring them to life. And it, it was fun to watch their eyes sparkle and just the expressions on their face. And they would light up as they would bring these stories to life. You know, fairy tales are, are fun that way. They're, they're fun to dive into and to, to see what happens and what's unfolding next. But as we get older, something happens we, because we know that fairy tales just don't come true. We know that in the middle of the night, magical elves are not just going to show up and make everything okay. That there's not going to be this fairy godmother who's going to come and wave her magic wand and turn that pumpkin into a carriage. We know that we just can't spin straw into gold. See, life's problems, life's issues, life's responsibilities, sometimes they can drown out the wonder and the amazement and the awe of life. Well, this morning we're launching into a new series. It's a series on the book of Ruth, and it has all the plot lines and all the intrigue of a typical fairy tale. There will be a damsel in distress, a bitter, uncaring mother-in-law. There will be twists and turns with pain and heartache, and at the same time, there's going to be this wealthy Prince Charming. It's a story of hope and love and redemption. But the best thing about it is, it's all true. 
It's all true. We, we get to watch as the sovereign hand of God shows us what happens when a fairy tale comes true, not just in the life of Ruth or Naomi, but in our lives as well. So whether you've read the book a hundred times or if this is your first exposure to the book of Ruth, I hope that over the next eight weeks that maybe you'll find yourself in the story a little bit, that you'll see yourself in the pages. I hope that as we flip through these chapters that it will inject a little bit of hope in your heart, a little wonder in your walk. I hope that it ignites your imagination to dream about what plans the sovereign God has for your life. So let's go ahead and kick it off. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. We're just going to blow the dust off this book and watch and see what happens when a fairy tale comes true. It's a series on love and redemption. Ruth 1, 1 to 5. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two children were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that left the woman alone, without her two sons and without her husband. If the narrator were born in our culture, you know, if he was writing this story today, he might begin with the phrase, once upon a time in the days of the judges. In the days when the judges ruled. See, he's setting the scene here. And he's giving us the background to this fascinating, amazing story. But since we aren't Jewish, sometimes some of the background can get lost on us. Sometimes it doesn't really fill in the gaps the way that it ought. It, it still leaves us guessing, well, what were those days of the judges like anyway? Well, they were, they were dark days. They were evil days. They were difficult days. They were bad days. The, the, the book of Judges begins by telling us that there was a time, that a generation arose that did not know God or the things that he had done for Israel. That, that's the way the book begins, that this generation arises and they've forgotten who the one true God is and what he had done in their history. And it's during these days. And then the book of Judges ends with this statement that was repeated earlier in the book, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Whatever was good for you, whatever was right for you, whatever is true for you, however you identify, whatever is real for you, that's just truth. And that's what you get to live out. This were, these were the days of the judges. You see, postmodernism was modern before even modern was modern, okay? Postmodernism has been for around for a long time. So you can't just read through the book of Ruth and read through the story of Ruth and believe that this was some pleasant time to be alive. That this was a time when the men were chivalrous and they, they protected women. 
And this was a time when women were kind and respectful of men. And you can't just read through the book of Ruth and imagine a scene where there were landowners who would go out and they would just treat their employees so well. And whatever leftover money they had, they used that money to give to the needy. If that is the society that you picture when you're reading the book of Ruth, then you've created an altogether different fairy tale. Because this is a place where everyone was selfish, doing what they thought was best, doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. These were the dark days of the judges, some of the darkest and ugliest and lowest days of Israel's history. You you read through the book of Judges and you see cycle after cycle of sin. You see division and cruelty and apostasy. You see civil war. You see the threat of a Midianite attack. It was a time of national disgrace, a time when God had been forgotten. These were dark, rough days. This is the background to the book of Ruth. This is the type of setting that we're entering into. This is a type of setting that you think nothing good can come out of this. Nothing good will come from these days. In the setting, the narrator, he tells us that it just goes from bad to worse Because now the narrator tells us that there was a famine in the land. That there was a famine in Bethlehem. These days were bad and evil enough. But now there's a famine. They've got to sit there with empty stomachs and watch the evil that's taking place in front of them. I mean, Bethlehem must have never looked worse for this family. This neighborhood was not a neighborhood you wanted to be in at this time. It must have never looked worse. And there's a bit of irony here, because Bethlehem, that, that name, that, that town, it's, it's the Hebrew word is Beit Lechem. It, it means literally the house of bread. This is the bread basket of Judah, and it's empty. People who are living in the house of bread are going hungry. Do you see the irony here? It's so ironic in this man, Elimelech, his name is broken down. Uh, Eli is short for Elohim or God. And then Melech, it means king. His name literally means God is my king. And he decides to leave Bethlehem, to leave the house of bread. And as soon as any Jewish, any good Jew reads that, any good Israelite reads that, that Elimelech is leaving Bethlehem. Anyone reading that, any good Israelite reading that screams and says, no, Elimelech, don't leave. Don't leave Bethlehem. Nothing good happens to people who leave Bethlehem. You must stay. Don't go. Don't go. Please stay. Because any good Israelite knows the book of Judges. It knows what happened to people who left Bethlehem. Any good Israelite would have been reminded of Judges chapter 17 and, and the man who left Bethlehem and he went out and then he got involved in this evil tribe of people and this tribe comes and just murders and slaughters a peaceful, unsuspecting village. Worse, any good Israelite would remember Judges 19 where a man and a woman leave Bethlehem And then they go to a village, and all throughout the night, a gang of people come and attack and abuse this woman all night long. And so hearing this, that this man is leaving Bethlehem, that he's taking his family, 
This God, this, this man whose name means God is my king will take his family and leave Bethlehem. They're shaking at the news because they know nothing as good is going to happen from this. This cannot be a good thing. Their, their mind is racing ahead because they've seen this story before. They've watched this movie before. They, they, they know that something bad is around the corner. And even more than that, they're headed to Moab. Moab, of all places, they're, they're leaving Judah all together, and they're headed to Moab. It's a foreign land, a foreign country with foreign culture, worshiping pagan gods, a polytheistic evil place with one unheard of atrocities that were accepted as normal in their society. In Psalm 60, verse 8, Moab is called the wash basin, the wash pot. Okay, the, the wash pot was used in those days for people as they're just walking around and they're traveling around the dirty, dusty roads. And then you walk into a house and there's the wash pot. And you take off your sandals and your feet were sweaty and so dirt and grime and junk just stuck to them. And then you put your feet in the wash pot to clean them off before you entered the house. And this is Moab. Moab's the wash pot. It's the wash basin. And so, so what we have here, we have a man whose name means God is my king. And he's leaving the house of bread to go to Moab, the wash pot. This is a man. He, he, he was living among God's people, the, the people who were supposed to be set apart and different in the house of bread. And he's going to Moab, the trash can. Why would he do it? How, how would he do it? See, this is what the Israelites are thinking as they're reading this story. Nothing good is going to come of this. But you know what? We've been there before, haven't we? Haven't you ever looked at things and just started searching for greener grass and just, just looked and said, you know, everything over there looks so much better. I'm, I'm sure if I had that job, if this worked out for me, if I just went there, things would be better. Have you ever bought the lie that God doesn't want you to go through any kind of difficulty, any kind of suffering, any kind of hard time in your life? That when hard times come, when difficulties arise, the best thing to do is just hightail it out of there because, after all, God would not want you to suffer. See, sometimes we can buy this lie too, that the greener grass is over there. And you know what? The greener grass always tends to be over there. It's always over there. Don't go searching for greener grass. Don't go searching for greener grass. This family, it sees the greener grass in Moab, and as one author put it, there's always green grass over a septic tank. And they take off toward Moab. Elimelech, his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion. But this wasn't just any family leaving Bethlehem. It says that they were Ephrathites. Ephrathites, you know this clan. I'm sure you've heard it before. We, we talk about it. It's common every Christmas time as we quote the prophet Micah, verse 5-2, where uh, he says, But you, Bethlehem, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are so small among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler of Israel, 
whose coming forth is from long ago, from ancient days. You see, even that prophecy of, of Micah gives you the idea that the Ephrathites, that they're a small group of people. This, this, is, a, this is a tiny clan, a, a small clan. This is driver. It's not D.C. But, but this small group was not an insignificant group. You, you might remember Caleb, the, the faithful and, and fearless warrior alongside of Joshua. His wife was named Ephrath. You see, this clan, they would be the founding clan of Bethlehem. They were the ones who came and helped settle Bethlehem. This isn't just any Jewish family leaving Bethlehem, going to Moab. This family's lineage traces all the way back to Bethlehem's foundation. And now this family, this Ephrathite family, is leaving Bethlehem for Moab. Moab, the place where pagan gods, polytheistic culture, evil practices take place. They were going to Moab the trash can. Don't, don't miss it. Elimelech, he just wanted to sojourn there. Did you hear that in verse 1? We're just going to sojourn there. You could almost hear him telling his wife and his sons as they were leaving. Oh, we're just going to go for a little while. It won't be that long, just until the famine is over, until we can fill our stomachs, until there's food again in Bethlehem, then we'll come back. It won't be that long. We'll just go for a little bit. Everything will be okay, and then we'll come back. You understand the pressure that this man is under, though. I mean, the pressure to, to provide, protect his family, the, the pressure to put food in their stomachs. And he's telling them, hey, it's only going to be temporary. We've just got to do this for a little bit. This is the practical thing to do. However, in in verse 2, it says something different. It says they remained there. They settled there. They settled there. It, It was only supposed to be a temporary stay, but it turned into a permanent solution. Elimelech would never make it back to Bethlehem. He died in Moab. He died in a land of polytheistic gods, a pagan culture. He he may have found the greener grass he was after. He may have found food in Moab. But at what cost? At, At what cost? I imagine as Elimelech was leaving and taking his family that he clearly saw what he was lacking in Bethlehem. But I wonder if for a moment, if he ever stopped to consider what he had in Bethlehem. Because you know, in Bethlehem, he had the opportunity as a member of the founding clan to lead his people back to genuine repentance and true worship of the one true God. In Bethlehem, he, he at least had the opportunity to go and offer sacrifices to his God the way he was supposed to. There was at least a remnant of people. Even though in the book of Judges there are cycles of sin, you still see stories of grace when strong leaders like Gideon and Deborah would step up to the plate. So there was at least a remnant where he could go and worship with God's people. But in going to Moab, he leaves all of that behind. There will be no worshiping with God's people in Moab. There will will be no calling God's people back to repentance and genuine worship. 
There will be no offering sacrifices the way he was supposed to do. See, he, he ran away viewing the greener grass of Moab as more valuable than the fellowship and the restoration of God's people. We must lead in hard times. Lead in hard times. See, it's against this dark backdrop of the days of Judges that the story of Ruth shines with all of her brilliance. Because in the middle of a people who simply do what is right in their own eyes came a kinsman redeemer who would do what was right in God's eyes. As hard as it is for Elimelech to leave Bethlehem, it was still the easier thing to do because there was food in Moab. Proverbs 20 verse 17 says, Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but he ends up with a mouthful of gravel. See, it was, I'm sure he, Elimelech, he deceived himself thinking this, this is the right thing to do. This is, the, this is what God would want me to do, to prevent, protect and provide for my family, I must go. But the easy way is not always the best way. It would have been much tougher to to tough it out and to call friends and neighbors together to to scrounge together for food and then to call the community together and, and beg and plead with them to return to the true worship of the one true God. But instead he left. He bailed. He went to Moab, the trash can. And in bailing, what type of testimony do you think he had? I mean, how was he supposed to lead his wife effectively? What was his testimony to her as he talked about the faithful God of Israel? How was he supposed to really train his children as he just hightails it out of there when times got tough? What would he have said to the people of Moab as they met him and and they said, oh, your name means God is my king, huh? King of what exactly? King of deserters? King of cowards? King of famines? What is your God king of anyway? I imagine Elimelech probably didn't bring his God up very often in Moab because what testimony did he have left? See, imagine, though, what his testimony could have been. If, if he would have stayed there when it was hard, he, he could have been the one to say, God is my king in feast and in famine. That God has always been faithful to us. Let, let's, let's take a step back and retrace again. Let's remember who this God is that we serve. Let's remember how he has provided in times past and how he will continue to provide in times ahead. Let's look to the one true God. Let's return to the God who loves us and ask him to extend his mercy to us once more. But Elimelech didn't leave that legacy. He He was just like his culture. In a culture who had forgotten about God and what God had done for Israel, Elimelech forgot. In a culture that did what was right in their own eyes, Elimelech just did what was right in his own eyes. He just did what made sense to him. He was a product of his culture rather than a leader in his culture. His legacy is simply what could have been. You know, the church in America, we we live in similar times. We we live in times of postmodern thinking, And we have the same decision right in front of us. See, because our culture is not all that different. We live in a culture who's largely forgotten what God has done, his provision, his 
faithfulness. We live amongst the people who just do what is right in their own eyes and whatever's true for them, that's just what they do. And so churches across our country, they're they're making the choice. What what are we going to do? Are we just going to be a a safe, nice country club that just does things the way we've always done it and just try to appeal to the people that we have? Are we going to be a training ground and a launching pad that impacts our area? Because we remember what God has done and who we are and what our mission is and the good news of the gospel that we have to share. Now, I'm so excited to be a part of Central, to be a part of this church, a church that embraces the challenge of the Great Commission, to win more and more people to Jesus, to go and to make disciples of all nations, a church that is committed to missions and committed to children, a church that will not compromise in the truth of God's word, but at the same time is willing to utilize new methods to reach the culture today that's in front of us. It's fun to be a part of this church who who willingly and gladly sets aside preferences and is willing to put on a VBS that was not like the VBS that you went to when you were kids because it was a VBS designed to reach this culture with the gospel. I'm excited to be a part of this church. You know, we look forward and we hope, and it's our prayer that in 20 years, the VBS we did this last week will look completely different than the VBS we do in 20 years from now because we will continue to adapt and to adjust, and we will continue to utilize new methods, but we will unwaveringly hold to the good news of the gospel, to the truth of God's word, because we want to effectively proclaim that God is king in any and every culture. And that's what leading in difficult times looks like. That, that's the privilege that Elimelech had, but he forfeited. That's the privilege that we have, that we will take advantage of. And it's not always easy, but it's right. It's, it's, it's not always easy to be a careful student of God's word and at the same time a careful student of the culture. But we must, because the word of God speaks clearly and relevantly to each and every culture. Elimelech, he had the opportunity and he squandered it. He went to Moab and he settled there. The next thing we find out about Elimelech is he died there. He died in a a foreign land of false gods. In verse 3, though, the, the tables of this story, they're already beginning to twist and turn. Scripture says that Elimelech, Naomi's husband. You see that? Before it was always Naomi was Elimelech's wife, but now the tables have already turned. Now he is her husband. This is unusual in ancient times that Naomi, a woman, would be taking center stage. That this woman would now be getting prominent billing. After all, this was a man's world. But the narrator is alerting us to the fact that Naomi will be one of the central characters in this story, not Elimelech. That it's Naomi's story that will come to the forefront. And the thought of a woman as a central character, as a prominent figure, in that society, that's scandalous. But God loved and cared and protected and elevated women before any society ever did. And the thought of this woman, of all women, this woman, a woman who, who, who went with her husband and her sons to a foreign land and watched as her sons married Moabite women, 
that, that this woman would get central billing. That's all the more unbelievable because that's what happened. Her boys, they married Moabites. God had already given the instruction earlier that you were not to marry these people. That These were godless people. You could not marry them. The fact that Malon and Kilion married Orpah and Ruth, it was sin. It wasn't right. It wasn't the right thing to do. But when you fail to lead and you bring your boys to, to a foreign place, and then your boys become men and they meet women. I mean, what do you expect's going to happen? See, th- this family, they exemplified the dark days of the judges, but these days are not so different from our days. See, you know the story because we hear the same story today. Boy meets girl. He brings her home to her parents. She's nice. She's beautiful. She's engaging. She's fun to be around. She's respectful. She's polite. She's a lot of fun. Just one problem. She doesn't believe in the one true God. But you know what happens. You you pat her on the back. You you pat him on the back. And you say, it's going to be okay. It'll it'll, it'll be all right. I mean, maybe, maybe you can win her to the Lord. Because after all, love conquers all. You see, this story isn't so different from the stories that we hear today. But before their stories could develop, we find out that the boys are dead too. They too will leave behind widows, Orpah and Ruth. This family, this Ephrathite family from Bethlehem, they came to Moab for just a temporary stay. And now 10 years later, Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion are all dead. In verse 5, you have the painful summary of the situation that Naomi was left alone. Alone. Being a widow in any culture is tragic. But in this male-dominated culture, to have no husband, to have no sons, to have no male relatives, no grandsons, to be alone in a foreign godless land. How's she going to survive? How's she going to make it? What's she going to do? What what does she even have to live for? See, even through the first five verses of this story, your your heart hurts for this woman. Your heart goes out to her. We we may have watched her make poor decisions, and, and, and maybe she just went along with her husband and did what she had to do, but your heart is hurting that she was dragged to this place and now left there alone. And I, I know the criticism could come that, but hey, you know, you know Steve, if, if Elimelech would have just left his family in Bethlehem, maybe they all would have died. Maybe, maybe they would have died of starvation. Maybe Naomi would have died too. We, we don't know what would have happened. It's true. We, we don't know what would have happened. We don't even know how they died, what, what circumstances led to their death. But I think it is worth mentioning that throughout the book of Ruth, that every other scene in the book of Ruth, every other paragraph in the book of Ruth mentions God. This is the only paragraph, the only scene where God is not mentioned at all. See, it seems as if it wasn't just Naomi who was alone, but from the very beginning, just like the dark culture of that time, this family was alone. That they were trying to survive 
on their own, doing what seemed right to themselves alone, that the presence of God was absent in their lives. See, what Elimelech and his family failed to realize was that the presence of God in a famine is better than a feast alone. You you know the feeling of being alone, don't you? Being alone in your grief, alone in your worry, alone in your pain, alone in your sin. That's where we'll leave Naomi this week. But you got to come back next week to see how this fairy tale continues to unfold. Heavenly Father, you are a good God. A God who loves us, God who chooses to use us. We, we thank you that we can celebrate your faithfulness to us this past week at VBS for all the many kids who came and, and heard the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you for those who, who you reached out and you saved into a relationship with you. But we know that there was a party in heaven just over that. And we thank you for the privilege that it was of being able to serve and just be a part of it. And God, as we look through the book of Ruth, as we begin this morning, and we see a story that, that begins in dark days and evil days and hard days, in a family who chose to do what was right in their eyes, who went searching for greener grass, Lord, forgive us when we do the same thing, but God, help us to focus on you and your goodness to us, the plans that you have for us. Help us not to do life alone. We thank you that we don't have to, that you give us a reason to live, a reason for being, and the the way to live. So God, help us to lead, to stand out in our culture, to make more and better disciples for you. We recognize we need your help to do that, so we ask these things by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.